Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Today we're discussing the differences between command and control and mission command, and how the Army has implemented these concepts over time. For decades, the Army used command and control to describe how commanders conducted operations and directed their forces. But that all changed in 2012 when the Army replaced command and control with mission command. However, last year the Army brought back command and control with a revision to ADP 6.0. I'm Major Chris Parker, and this podcast topic is the evolution of command and control. With me today is Colonel Rich Creed, the Director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, or CAD, and Chuck Schrenkel, Division Chief of the Command and Control Division at CAD. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, gentlemen. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. So, gentlemen, before we dive in to the reasons and some of the consequences behind these changes, I think it's appropriate to start with a definition. So, if we could, what is command and control, and how do we put this into action? How do we do it? That's a great question, Chris, and I think we, we should set the baseline of expectations for the rest of the conversation. So, I'll let Chuck uh, Schrankel tackle that one with what the doctrine actually says uh, command and control is. And thank you, sir. Before I start talking, you know, just kind of, it's pretty easy, simple definition, right? Command control is the exercise of authority and direction by a property designated commander over assigned assign and attached forces during a conduct operations. And that's definition has been around for quite a while. Yeah, but you had said something earlier about command and control being in, in Army doctrine for decades. Yeah, and, and I just want to give you a quick rundown on, you know, kind of command and control in Army doctrine because it actually is a relatively new idea. Uh, you, you know, we've talked about C2 for probably 30 years, uh, but we never had a coherent doctrinal manual on it. And if you go back and look how it's evolved over time, you know, we had a lot of terms that meant command and control. Uh, you know, we taught command, we taught control, we taught command and control. You had command control and communications. You had C4ISR. Uh, for a while, battle command was, was the Army's uh, term for command and control. If, for those of us who are old enough to remember you know, General Freddie Franks, the work he did after, you know, post-Desert Storm. Yeah, but it wasn't until 2003 that, that the Army published its first command and control manual, okay? And it was the first command and control doctrine, yeah, and it was FM60 titled Mission Command, Command Control Army Forces. And it was the first time that we pulled together kind of the disparate pieces of command and control doctrine from Army and joint publications uh, and kind of tied it all together into a model, a command and control model. Uh, and to me, that gets to the second part of your question of, you know, kind of how do you exercise command and control? Uh, if you look at our earlier command and control doctrine and the current command and control doctrine, uh, the, the, the manuals are laid out very similarly. You know, we have a kind of a setup chapter, uh, and then there's a chapter on command, and we talk about the elements of command, and that sets the stage for decision-making doctrine. Uh, and then we have a chapter on control uh, that talks about uh you know, kind of communications. Uh, it talks about how to organize for command and control and a couple other things. Uh, it sets the stage for information and knowledge man- information management and knowledge management uh, and a couple other kind of communications, big ideas that are out there. Uh, there's, a, there's a chapter on the role of the commander and what a commander does uh, during the conduct operations. Uh, And then really the big idea, the so what of all that discussion is how do you put that in action? Uh, And that's the commander driving the operations process uh, by understanding, visualizing, directing, leading, assessing. 
So that's kind of a long explanation, but I wanted to give you a little bit of the back or history of kind of how that's evolved over time. I think you could argue that uh, it gets more important um, the more spread out or uh, dispersed forces are. So as, you know, over the course of history, you always had people that were telling other people what to do, when to do it, uh, telling their subordinates how they want things done and so forth. Um, but when you're talking about military operations that are, can be spread over hundreds or even thousands of miles in some cases, um, and then you have all these multiple echelons involved, you needed a process by which authority and direction can be manifested in physical activities at some point, and that it's meeting the intent uh, not just of uh, a particular commander, but even the United States government. I mean, and so uh, once you're to the point you, you cannot talk to people face-to-face or even on a telephone, then you need to have processes that enable uh, the right things happening in, in the right time and place. And, and that makes it fundamental to all military operations and activities. I mean, it, it's not um, some special thing. It, it's just a fundamental in, inherent requirement to conducting military operations, and it always has been. And calling it other things over time doesn't change the fact that whatever you call it, you still have to do. Well, and speaking of that, sir, I mean, it brings up a good point that we can kind of transition to. What is what is mission command then? Uh, that was the big, you know, we, we talked about that earlier here. Um, what does that, what does it mean and, and how is it different from command and control? So command and control is the requirement, right? So it's an activity, but it's a, it's a requirement to be able to, to conduct operations. Uh, I need to be able to direct people to do things and then they have to do it in a sequence uh, or simultaneously or a combination thereof uh, or things don't work out. So uh, what we think of mission command is an approach to command and control. And so over the course of 35 years that I've been around the Army, um, we had other names for it. We used to call it uh, mission tactics, uh, decision point tactics. Um, we used to call it... Uh, uh, we, it was, I was centralized planning, decentralized execution. Yeah, yeah right, decentralized planning. execution. We used to call it powering down. You power, empower your subordinates, and powering down was, was a cool thing to say uh, for a while. But they all essentially meant the same thing. And so what we say uh, Mission Command is now, it's the Army's approach to command and control that empowers subordinate decision-making and decentralized execution appropriate to the situation. And that last part is hugely important. Because the situation matters, and, and we conduct military operations, um, tactical tasks, or just activities in garrison uh, in all kinds of different contexts. And so the amount of uh, decentralized execution is going to vary uh, according to a bunch of different variables. And maybe we can talk about those in a little bit, but, you know, this idea, and we have principles, um, but really they're variables in any particular con- uh, context. You know, so the competence of your subordinates. How well do they know how to do the job? When you're dealing with folks who are very junior or doing things for the first time, you're going to be more directive at, at time as you're educating and training them to get good at their job. And as, that they, as they get good at it, um, you can then empower them um, to ex- execute without you looking over the shoulder every day. You give them a very general mission statement and they go out and do it. Um, and as the subordinates become more confident in their ability to do things, and you become more confident in their ability to do things. It develops this level of mutual trust. Um, 
but you, mutual trust isn't just enough. You have to have a shared understanding of the end state of the task that you, you, you want to uh, accomplish. And so that repetition, that interaction between uh, leaders and the lead um, creates this level of shared understanding. I can say certain things and people know what I mean without having to explain every little detail. Hey, go take care. You're in charge of command maintenance today. Okay, I know what that means because we have a very strict standard in, in this company or, or the battalion uh, as far as adhering to these specific processes. Um, if I don't understand that, then I'm going to have to tell my subordinates at 10 o'clock you're going to turn in your 5988s and that you know, 1,400, the mechanics need to start entering stuff in, into the uh, Olds G box. Well, okay, some people think that's micromanagement. It's not micromanagement if people don't know how to do that when you start off. When they get to the point that they know how to do it, you can just give the broad, today's command maintenance, our priorities are these vehicles, and then people get after it, right? Um, so that mutual trust and shared understanding of, of the desired outcomes are important, which allows commanders to, to provide commander's intent, right? I mean, there should be some understood intent uh, by both the leaders and the lead that we are meeting the higher commander's uh, desired end state. And when everybody's on board with those principles, those variables, um, I can then execute operations through mission orders, which are much shorter than the typical op order that people see that's got to have all these different details. That's not necessarily bad, but in dynamic situations, I ought to be able to give a very quick task and purpose to subordinates on the radio, for example, to say, uh, do this, uh, time now, uh, report when done, and people understand what we mean. Um, but you can't do mission orders and have them effectively carried out if you don't have uh, those first four principles, you know, part of your culture. Um, and then we talk about this thing, uh, this idea of discipline initiative. Um, discipline initiative is not a constraint other than to say, because, uh, of course, we never want indiscipline initiative. But what we want is and, and what we mean by discipline initiative is, uh, we're operating inside that commander's intent. I understand what my left and right limits and what the desired end state is. As long as I stay within uh, those left and right limits uh, and work towards that intent, I am pretty much free to come up with my course of action during execution to get those things done. Um, now, when we take this approach, somebody has to accept the risk, right? And so we call it risk acceptance because the higher level leader has to accept some risk that the subordinates may not always get it right. All right, the risk should not be on the subordinates that they're gonna get in trouble if they get it wrong. Um, and that's why we have training events and that's why we do things in garrison the same way we wanna do in the field so that we build up the culture that helps us get to the level in, in each of these principles or elements and variables in a situation up to that level where we are comfortable accepting the risk uh, and we're going to accept that risk differently depending on how well our, our, our subordinates are developed in each of these other areas. And at the end of the day, none of this is any different than how everybody really operates uh, when they interact with their subordinates and their bosses. We've always kind of acted that way. It's just a human condition. But we did a bad job in the past, and I think Chuck will talk about that later, but we did a bad job in the past explaining it because we tried to... Um, to use or not use words that everybody uses every day. And that's what we really tried to do. Well, sir, I think that brings up a, a good point. I want to jump and I want to kind of dive a little bit more into the risk piece of this. 
And that was a change in the most recent version of our doctrine, where we moved away from what was prudent risk to now risk acceptance. And I'm, I'm curious, you allude to what made that, why we did that change, but what, what, what was the actual problem behind it? Were we too prescriptive? Were we too risk averse? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think prudent was a loaded term. And so people of good faith can say, okay, I kind of get what prudent is. If I was competent, we had mutual trust, shared understanding, clear commander's intent, and we use mission orders, then prudent risk kind of takes care of itself. Um, the problem is one person's prudent may be somebody else's imprudent. Um, and so feedback from the field was um, that certain commanders in certain situations, um, their view of prudent was zero risk. Um, and that prudent risk in most situations is zero risk. And, and so the risk, if the risk is to me, then I'm not going to let you do anything. Uh, that's not how the Army is going to be able to win fights, okay? Um, we have to accept risk, and whether it's prudent or not is really irrelevant. Sometimes it's necessary. Go ahead, Chuck. Yes, sir. I was just going to say, you know, there is an impression out there that the Army is very risk-averse, uh, and, and the leadership, Tradoc and CAC, and this was not like CAD sitting around making this, you know, making this up. This was a four-star level decision after he polled all the sitting uh, division and corps commanders, uh, General Townsend did, uh, as far as what, should there be a modifier on risk, and, and if so, what should it be? Uh, but prudent implied a certain amount of timidity, uh, in, in his opinion, uh, and he was looking for a better modifier uh, than, than, than prudent. Uh, and risk acceptance was ultimately the one he decided on after talking to, say, I think we got feedback from six, six of division commanders and all the corps commanders, commanders, some uh, theater army commanders, and, and plus some commanders within TRADOC as well. Right. So, kind of kind of sounds a little ironic that we have to get that level involved uh, to make a, a change for a, a word. Is that is it evidence of, of that we were really risk averse to making changes to our doctrine? Well, what we were looking for was clarity, and and we wanted the force to to be all in and accepting it, and so. Our going in position was we didn't want a modifier at all. In fact, we didn't want any modifiers on any of these things because if you have a modifier that says, say, for example, prudent risk, would anybody assume the opposite? So why would you want a modifier on a word? So if I didn't say prudent risk, then, then imprudent risk would be okay? Well, no. Um, so that was kind of our argument. But I think the consensus, and this is certainly General Townsend's position, was you got to drive that cultural change like Chuck said. And when you say risk acceptance, you're not making it negotiable in terms of how you interpret it. You're saying you're going to accept risk. It's, it's active, yeah. It's active. Yeah. And, uh, you know, part of this is related back to focus on large-scale ground combat operations where um, when you're fighting peer threats, to create opportunities, you have to accept risk. And that's not something that we've been comfortable thinking about in, in these other environments we've been fighting for the, the, you know, the last 15, 20 years. Well, sir, I think that that brings up a good point to get us back to the large-scale combat piece and how this applies. Um, but I want to look at where this came from first, because it, my understanding is that this, the, 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 the popular history is that this was uh, an invention of Helmuth von Moltke in 1869, his instructions for large unit commanders. So we're looking at large-scale combat, but we're talking about decentralized decision-making, for example. Um, so 
do you uh, do you see uh, that as where this came from? And then how did it make its way into our American U.S. Army doctrine? Well, I think um, there's it's more complicated than it just came from the Germans because we, as Americans, we have our own cultural inheritance, right? And our army certainly does. Um, I, on the formal side, I think there was a lot of heavy influence from the Germans because the Germans were doing professional writings on a scale that were, exceeded what our frontier-type army uh, at the late 19th century was, was kind of doing in terms of public publishing doctrine uh, and so forth. So that the 1905 Field Service Regulations talks uh, very much in the German spirit without quoting the Germans about, you know, the commander's job is not to trespass on uh, issues that are better handled by the subordinates. In other words, let the subordinates get their job done without interfering too much. If they can't get the job done, you fire them. Um, so I think that was a formal influence, but I think as Americans, we need to recognize that it's a cultural tradition within our Army for most of its history uh, to assign commanders difficult tasks. And you think about the frontier going back 100 years before Mulkey, um, where you are sending military expeditions out uh, on far-flung frontiers with no communication or communication that takes days or weeks. So you have to give them a task and a purpose and leave them to their own devices to a large extent to get things done. And that was not uh, a culturally strange thing for Army officers uh, on the North American continent uh, for 150 years, any different than it would be for Navy captains who get their orders and sail off the sea in the era before radios, right? They were... They were given tasks to do, and they were expected to sort it out without anybody looking over their shoulders. So we had a long history of that, um, but I think we we also started to to try to emphasize uh, its cultural importance when you go to uh, the periods of the World Wars, right, where you have large conscript armies, which was not an, an American tradition, and you had far fewer percentage of professionals. Uh, in the force, and so you felt like you needed to have a little bit more control. You had to be a little more directive uh, with folks that didn't know the business. You know, you get back to these variables again, uh, the principles, and competence uh, wasn't necessarily uh, something that was big. And we did have our setbacks. I mean, you can think of some of the great defeats in, the, in some of these Indian wars where folks went out and lost because yeah, they were given their left to their own devices to solve the problem, but they weren't good enough to do it, uh, or they fell into unfortunate circumstances. So, so what I what's, what's interesting about this is that you know Mulkey brought this up as instructions for large units. However, the American tradition is that we're using this with essentially dispersed small units on a frontier, and then fast forward to more recent history, we got 2012, and this really looks like Mission Command reaches its zenith with with its title on ADP 60. Now, that occurred at a time when we were fighting as essentially decentralized small units again in combat outposts in Afghanistan or in Iraq. And my question is, is did it still, did it work? And, and what was the reason for making that change at a time when we were doing such small unit operations? Is that, did it help? I'm going to let Chuck talk to that because he was here uh, when, when the changes came. I would tell you that we were operating in any unit I was with in Iraq. Uh, and the Balkans even before that, um, we operated on a mission command approach routinely. And, and so, you know, you had constraints. They were called rules of engagement. Um, but once you were confident that people understand, understood all that stuff, you did trust platoon leaders, platoon sergeants, 
company commanders and so forth. I mean, we all, you know, the doctrine said those kind of fights were company-grade fights, battalion fights, brigade fights. Um, so I'll let Chuck talk to why we think that that came about. Yeah, and, and I, there's just a couple thoughts uh, going through my head as I've been listening here the last few minutes. You know, one of the questions you never ask is why, you know, why do we prefer mission command or why do we think the mission command pro- uh, approach is such kind of a big deal? And, and it gets back to kind of our understanding of, and, and how we view the nature of warfare, right? And it's kind of, you know, we believe it's uncertain and it's chaotic and things will go wrong uh, and you're going to lose communications with your higher headquarters uh, and there's a ton of decisions that need to be made on a routine basis. Uh, and the only way to deal with kind of that situation is to, you know, empower your subordinates to make and implement decisions, you know, appropriate to the situation. And that frees up the commander from having to focus on every detail that's out there and lets him kind of look bigger picture and farther into the future uh, in, in time. Uh, so that's kind of why we prefer uh, mission command uh, is our approach at the command control and, and, and while we described it. Uh, the second thing is is there's this narrative out there that says Mission Command was brand new in 2012, that, that it was a great big idea uh, and, and, and the Army really, really had thought it through. And I will tell you that's false. That's one, of the, that's one of the two really bad narratives that still persist out there. You know, we had pretty solid Mission Command doctrine in 2003 uh, when we published the first command and control book, back then we described mission command as our preferred method of command and control. Uh, so you heard me kind of go back and forth between method and approach. Uh, so, so it's been in our doctrine for quite a while as a term, and mission command ideas go all the way back to, to kind of the 1905 uh, field service regulation. Uh, you know, in 2010 timeframe, uh, we kind of got called in and, and, and told that... Uh, uh, you know, command and control was kind of an old idea, that, that it was an industrial age construct, that command and control was probably bad because it implied I'm telling you what to do and you're just going to go out and do it. Uh, and that was not good enough for, uh, for the OEs of the future, for the OE that we were fighting at the time and the OE envisioned. Uh, I will tell you that I think that was not correct. Uh, I think that we had already addressed all that in doctrine uh, and that, uh, you, you know, it was more of a leader development education issue than a doctrinal issue. You know, the answer to people not following doctrine is not write more doctrine. It's kind of enforce the standard that's out there. So, so one of the other big points was, and this is kind of valid, is that when people talk command and control, they kind of automatically default to uh, the systems, okay, and the associated box you know, how you view command and control kind of views on what your job is in the Army, all right? All right, all right? You know, if you're a commander or an operations officer or, you know, a chief of staff, to you, command and control is about making deci- making and implementing decisions, okay? If you're a signal officer, you know, command and control is about, you know, getting the data from point A to point B. If you're an IM, KM guy, it's about making sure the cop is correct. If you're you know, a staff guy, it's making sure you have your running estimate and your orders annex. There's so many things associated with it, right? Uh, but, but really, you know, command and control is a human activity, right? Command and control is fundamentally about the interaction between the commander and the staff or subordinates as they have a dialogue, okay, to try to help the commander understand the situation better so he can update his visualization, make, and, and subsequently implement you know, a decision. 
So to me, C2 is a fundamentally human activity, but everybody went down the technical road. Uh, and so one of the reasons that, that they said they want to go to mission command for kind of the umbrella term uh, was to kind of emphasize the human aspects of it. But as usual, when we try to do something like that, all we do is I.O. ourselves, uh, and it doesn't work the way we kind of normally think to, because all of a sudden people are talking in terms of mission command systems and, you know, mission command, which, you know, kind of had been an approach or a preferred method of command control is now associated with all these other things. You know, we kind of had a very rich taxonomy out there that, uh, you know, in, in our model of command and control, you know, command and control, command and control system, battle command, mission command were all kind of terms we would use. Well, all of a sudden, all that was replaced with mission command. And mission command went from being something very small and special that you kind of talk about to this huge, you know, kind of basket of things. And it was really kind of funny to watch people try that discussion yeah, because I come out from the human aspect and, you know, a, a gizmo guy would try to start a conversation and it would take like 30 seconds of back and forth before you could even figure out like what part of mission. What are we talking about? Yeah, yeah. it was just it was just goofy. I think that I don't think it was the zenith. Uh, I think that was an attempt, you know, to try to uh, make people pay attention to it more. I think they recognize the uh, the importance of it. And I'm really and I'll tell you, it got people talking about mission command. There's no doubt, but I think the implementation was just a tad flawed. I think that, thank you for explaining that, you know, why the change was made. But I'm, I'm curious now what you're given this task to go back and make this, to update doctrine, make it more human, make it more relevant, um, post-industrial age doctrine. What did you guys actually sit down and change in the doctrine, given the mission command piece? Did any, was it still the same tasks and systems that we associate with command and control? Was it just a search and replace, you know, everywhere you saw command and control in the pub, did it now become mission command? What, what was that? You know, fun, the fundamentals change. Yeah. You know, at one time we kind of had elements of mission command, uh, and, and that was when we wrote about it back in 20, uh, 2003, it was commander's intent. Uh, at the time it was called subordinate initiative, not discipline initiative. Uh, risk, uh, prudent risk, and then, uh, uh, believe it or not, resource allocation. And that's something I don't think we talk about a lot. If you're going to tell somebody to go do something, you've got to give them the material to go do it with, right? So those were like the four elements that we had associated with Mission Command. And that historically, uh, if you go back and look at kind of how the Germans viewed it, uh, those, are, those are kind of the historical uh, elements associated with Mission Command. Uh, so we updated, we, took, we changed those elements, okay, uh, we added a few. Uh, none of them were ideas that had not already been addressed in our command and control doctrine. You know, we just had talked about it in a different place, but they kind of fell to a level of fundamental. Uh, we did. We did tag mission command onto stuff, right? So like the, what had been the command and control system became the mission command system. What had been the uh, command and control warfighting function became the command and control warfighting function. Or I'm sorry, but it became the mission command warfighting function. Uh, we killed a thing called battle command, which, again, for those of us who were old enough, uh, had just kind of started to be, uh, you, you know, normalized in the Army around the 2000 to 2001 time frame uh, with the publication of the 2001 FM30 and then subsequently this book. Uh, uh, and, and so we killed, like I said, we got rid of that taxonomy. The other thing we did is we came up kind of with this weird commander, staff, and additional task construct. 
you know, if you look at the definition of warfighting function, it talks about tasks and systems, okay? Or the way I write to it is tasks and a system. Uh, and and I, I don't want to get into exactly how they kind of evolved, but, you know, we came up with some very specific commander tasks, and we came up with some very specific t staff tasks that really were... Uh, associated with how the commander drives, you know, the operations process. You know, it was kind of supposed to get to the interaction between the commander and staff uh, during the conduct operations. We also had this thing called additional tasks. And the additional tasks were a group of tasks that had originally kind of been written to in C2, but had just kind of fallen off. And we didn't know what else to do with them. It's things like airspace control, knowledge management, and information management. You know, there's a couple of protection tasks that were flowing around out there. Uh, you know, military deception. I mean, there were some big, you know, kind of big important ideas that we used to write to in the command control book that when we first did this book, the 2012 version kind of fell out. Uh, and as we were writing it, finishing it up, we realized we had to kind of had to add that stuff back in there. So we kind of had this really confusing, you know, we had a confusing taxonomy, and then we had this huge laundry list of tasks that, ought, to me, didn't make, you know, the best sense in the world. So I don't know if that answers your question well, all, or not. All of them were called mission command. So th there was this other uh, unintended consequence as well, which is gets back to the point of I talked about earlier about uh, a little bit about the senior leaders buying in uh, to the necessity for us to kind of fix this problem that we inflicted upon ourselves. Um, but you got this, this led to these misperceptions because we're using the same words, mission command, to mean a whole bunch of different things. And, you know, when you think about when folks come into the Army, particularly in the officer corps, you know, when, they, when you get taught about mission command, the, 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 the focus of that is about mission command as we talk about it now. It's about taking the initiative with inside the commander's intent to get things done, decentralized execution. So... You're, you're commissioning cohorts of officers who are focused on the cultural side of it. Um, and because that cultural focus of that one element of what was being called mission command didn't account for the other part, the, the words you could not utter, which was command and control, um, which was also called mission command. I mean, just because it went away doesn't mean that it, it still wasn't fundamental what you did. So you had this very... Um, heated uh, series of conversations in every CGSC class that comes to Fort Leavenworth about the Army's not serious about this because, oh, yeah, they mission commanded the heck out of me in my last year. Let me tell you all the horror stories of, of being told what to do and how to do it, particularly as, you know, because the timing was the same as we were drawn down in Iraq and the bulk of the force was back in CONUS. And so what kind of activities were they doing? Well, they were doing those routine process-related activities that you had to be told to do exactly what you were supposed to do until you learned it uh, or else you wouldn't get the outcomes you needed, right? There's things that are very process-oriented, whether it's command supply discipline uh, or command maintenance. Uh, those kinds of things you have to adhere to certain processes or you don't get the, the outcomes you need. And if you don't understand those, then someone needs to tell you what they are. Uh, and so that kind of uh, gets back to, to Chuck's piece here about you know, once you start calling something everything, it's no longer special when we lose focus on the part that, that we were actually trying to develop leaders to implement. And that kind of gets back to the second. I had mentioned there was two narratives out there, you know, earlier. 
Uh, one being that we never had, that Mission Command was new in 2010, 2011 timeframe. The second narrative is, is that, you know, C2 is bad and Mission Command is good. And, and, I, and to this, it still kills me to this day, but there's still YouTube videos where a War College colonel will get up there and explain to you, sorry, sir. Man, no. you know, he says, here's command and control. Command and control is bad because it's top-down, centralized, directive, and Mission Command is good. And mission command is you know decentralized and empowered subordinates and well that's that's an apples and an oranges comparison. We never it was never uh, doctrinally discussion about uh, command and control and mission command. It was a discussion about mission command versus detailed command, or if you're in the Marines, mission command and control versus detailed command and control. And we kind of described them as two opposites, right? So you have you have these two extremes out there, mission command. And, command, and detailed command, uh, and, and we, as the Army, prefer kind of to be out here on the mission command side. However, we acknowledge the fact that really you're kind of somewhere in the middle based on the situation, right? There's some instances where you've got to be more detailed in how you exercise command and control, uh, like the boss talked about earlier, okay? So that's why I was really kind of screwed up back in 2010, 2012, because to me the discussion, again, had always been detailed versus mission command, never command and control versus mission command. They're two separate but related ideas. And we have a whole generation of officers that have been brought up now, uh, you know, under this idea that command and control is a bad thing or that, that, that control is bad. Control's not bad. Control's good. Control is what keeps people alive. You know, it's what helps you synchronize. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why control is, a good, is kind of a good thing. You can't synchronize an operation without control. No. I mean, no. you can't employ fires without control. No. Uh, that's what graphical control measures are for. Right, and, and, and so now what are second and third order effects? Well, I think that there's, you know, we've tried to come back off. I know we'll get back into the new naming convention, but now you have things like MCTP out there, right? And and when they were called bow command training program, you know, bow command was like what the commander did during a conduct operation, so that was pretty cool. Uh, that made sense. Uh, but I'm not so sure that even under the old model, you know, it, you call it MCTP to me, it's confusing. Uh, you know, sorry, Colonel Morgan, if you're listening to this out there. Uh, but I think I said this to his face. And I think the COE name is confusing, right? You know? Uh, if I think the name of the book is a little bit confusing. If it were up to me, I'd just call it command and control. I think we make this way too hard uh, than it needs to be. Uh, we decided on baby steps deliberately. Right. So folks didn't think that we were walking away. It, 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 it's exactly the opposite of walking away. We're actually raising it up to the high level that it should be held in regard. And focused upon, and and so you you bring up some of these problems, and one of the ones that I'm I'm curious about is, and this we could probably do our own podcast on this this subject by itself is this idea that when the army marches off in its own direction, and during our seven year stint with mission command, the joint force did not speak that language. The joint force was a command and control force, and they stuck with it. You know what? What is why? What is what are the ramifications when we run off in our own direction? Is it, it does it work? Does it? You know what are the problems here? It, it's terrible. Okay, just in this in this particular uh, instance, it was terrible. It was professionally embarrassing for one thing. You, you, you know, when you get up there and speak a different language, uh, and you're not nested with your joint uh, uh, sister and multinational partners, the chances for miscommunication are are huge, uh, and that's not good. You know, during the conduct, the whole reason you have a doctrinal language is so that we all kind of have a common understanding of what we mean when we say something. And when the Army is out there saying mission command, it means command control, you know, it just really is a little bit odd. 
the other thing that was is that Joint has mission command. Okay, they acknowledge mission command. The Army's definition of mission command is is or I'm sorry, Joint's definition of mission command is our old definition of mission command, the one we had back in 2003. So they still kind of have this view, you know, of mission command, and each one of the services has a view of it, right? They all have kind of their own uh, their own thing. You know, the Air Force has uh, centralized planning, uh, decentralized execution. Uh, the Navy has uh, command, a thing called command by exception. Uh, the Marines have mission command and control and detailed command and control. Even the Coast Guard kind of acknowledges that subordinate initiative, you know, is a good thing, uh, you know, when your orders are no longer applicable or, you know, things have happened. So, so everybody has their version of it. We're the only ones that kind of went to this, we're going to change everything to be mission command and just made it a little bit confusing and I probably sound a little bitter about that, but that's just good. No, I think it's true. Now, that is that the fact that the other services did accept that does mean that the Army does have a significant impact on the Joint Force and our allies. And our allies, um, particularly NATO and the Five Eyes, uh, Abkhaz armies, um, also all acknowledge that Mission Command is a thing. Um, but what they did not do is walk away from uh, command and control being fundamental to Army tasks, activities, and operations. And so... They kept the focus on it being an, an approach, the preferred approach, and they will all say that that is their preferred approach in their army. In fact, we sent people to the former Warsaw Pact, in some cases former Soviet Socialist Republic nations, trying to explain to them um, what this mission command approach is. And I guess that's an interesting aside too, right? We say we prefer mission command, um, and we do. We've made it the doctrine and we say it is the Army's approach, not preferred approach. Um, but our Army is unique uh, to all the other examples that we've given, other than our sister services, uh, with very few exceptions. And that we have something in our Army that allows us to, to take a mission command approach at every echelon, and that's a professional NCO Corps, which did not get enough attention, in my mind, neither the staff nor the NCO Corps, and their role in making mission command work uh, at every echelon in the Army. Because doctrine needs to apply to every echelon. It, it needs to be, particularly when you're talking about warfighting functions um, and, and these very fundamental things to conducting military operations, it needs to be applicable at every echelon in every context. Um, and so uh, the people that you know enable that at the user, at the very granular level in our Army are non-commissioned officers and junior officers. Uh, and the staffs, you know, immediately above them. Because if, if they're not with the program, this whole thing doesn't work. Uh, and that's the other thing that we think is going to be a powerful uh, second, intended, deliberately intended second order effect for uh, revising the doctrine. So, so we did that, well, we did that revision in 2019, got our wits about us, got, went back to command and control. Now, what were some of the bigger changes, I guess, to ADP 6.0? With that revision, um, what did we bring back? How did we, how did we massage that that revision? Well, it took a couple of years. <laughs> um, well, so we do FM three O, and uh, it was released on October seventeen. And as it was released, uh, the Combined Arms Center Commander General on these said, "Okay, so what's next?" Well, the, what we need to do is fix the Army doctrinal publications to get them focused on large scale ground combat and account for the multi domain operations future concept. Okay, so. Uh, here, the Combined Arms Doctrine Director, we owned several of the ADPs, um, this one being one of them. Um, and so they were all being revised simultaneously. 
And one of the things that we recognized was you can't do large-scale ground combat operations and think about it in terms of conventional military operations against peer threats or anybody else if we don't bring some clarity to our language. Okay, we got to stop pretending like command and control is not a thing. You cannot do those kinds of operations without recognizing command and control as fundamental to their success. Um, so we got buy-in um, for this approach, and it was iterative, and it involved a lot of general officers reading chapters and drafts and, and whiteboard sessions and so forth. And so this is a, a, an example of a success story in doctrine where senior leadership is personally involved. The most experienced soldiers in the Army take a hands-on approach uh, to fixing something that needed to be fixed for everybody. And so Lieutenant General Lundy gave us the, the go for the approach to this. And we, again, we, were, we, were, we aimed high um, and we were given some constraints because there were some concerns that there may be other uh, senior leaders out there who uh, may be reluctant to walk away from, from some of the things that they thought they understood. So. Um, it was an iterative process, and we, so we say it took two years. It really did. Um, so General Lundy's helping us, and, and Major General Mingus, um, you know, became our champion, reading chapters, uh, you know, commenting on them, kicking them back to me. I'm kicking them to Chuck. He's kicking them back to us. Then we kick them up to General Lundy, and we're working our way through this. And we have to get buy-in from some other people, too. we got to get buy-in um, from the Center for Army Leadership, for example, and, and, and the different centers of excellence in terms of, hey, are we saying something here that doesn't make sense to, to how we're you know, teaching and educating young officers and NCOs? And so um, you bring that forward towards the end of the process, and what we needed to do, and, and we, uh, one of the big decisive moments was uh, the day before General Perkins retired, the TRADOC commander, when he retired in 2018, we, we went for the big win in terms of saying, hey, boss, uh, and we did it at a TRADOC Commander's Forum, and we said, it, we really need to bring the term command and control back. That was like our fall on our sword issue. And he was the guy here at the Combined Arms Center who uh, was here when the doctrine was directed to be changed. He was not the one who directed it, but it, he was here that had to implement that. And his experience as three years as a TRADOC commander was he had to spend half of his public speaking roles when he came to the schoolhouse to talk to field grade officers when he went to the war college and so forth was to explain mission command to everybody. And um, he did it brilliantly. And there's YouTube videos you can go out there and, and, and see how he talks about mission command. The problem was what he said was not doctrine. what the doctrine said. <laughs> it was what the doctrine was supposed to say. So we had a very good relationship with General Perkins uh, uh, within CAD. So uh, we used a little bit of a sense of humor, and we said, uh, hey, sir, you're retiring tomorrow, and because his chain of command was the next day. So we said, you know, when you retire, we don't have anybody in place to, uh, to brief what the doctrine is supposed to say. And I said, we're changing the doctrine. You know we're working on this. And I said, the one thing that we need your backup on uh, is to bring command and control back because what you talk about is how mission command is uh, employed in a practical sense every day in garrison and in the field, uh, in CONUS and while deployed, uh, in, in terms of applying mission command to command and control processes. Um, and since you're retiring, there's nobody else there, can you let us do it, please? And he goes, and he laughed and he goes, all right, approved. Yeah. So that set us free. 
for the next year to get this stuff right. And everything started falling into place. And the last uh, step in the process was to get approval for changing the name of the warfighting function. And General Lundy was very concerned that uh, the chief of staff of the Army or other people would say, what are you guys doing down there in CAC? You know, you guys, we just got this mission command stuff right, and then you got to tell me you want to change the name of the warfighting function and walk it away. Um, so what we did was we, we, we spoke with General Townsend because he found that mission command, he was in the same boat General Perkins was trying to explain mission command, and he wrote a series of articles on this. We helped him with a couple, and, and he did some others himself. Um, but we were lucky enough to have whiteboard sessions with him where we got a chance to talk about why, you know, what makes sense and so forth. And so he said at the end, he gave us everything we wanted to do. And in the last session we had with him, he goes, uh, so what else is out there? I said, well, there are some people that think we ought to change the warfighting function back to command and control. And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was that easy. So we were worried all the way up, but we had made enough of an argument and had a positive relationship that he goes, absolutely, do it. And so we, were worried, we would have been happy with 80% of what we were trying to change, and we got 100% of it. And he was personally involved, again, in iterating that and reading it himself. And, and so that kind of senior leader buy-in uh, really made the doctrine better. So now it's, it's been published. It's been out for almost a, a year now, essentially, as doctrine. And I'm curious, sir, I know that, you know, before this whole COVID craziness, you were able to get out and do quite a bit of battlefield circulation amongst the, the operational force. And I'm, I'm wondering, have you received much feedback on this change to command and control? And what has it been? Good, bad, ugly? Are, are the units able to implement it better? Does it make more sense out there? Um, I would tell you, um, one, what I find when I go out and talk about doctrine, I, I, it's 6-0 and, and, and mission command, command control. Uh, what we do is we talk about what's new in doctrine. And so, so in many cases, the audience is hearing it for the first time because uh, the reality is people read the doctrine that's associated with the jobs that they have, and they don't necessarily sit around on the weekends uh, either listening to our audiobooks or, uh, or reading doctrinal publications. Um, the bigger impact would be in the schoolhouses as they change the POIs uh, to that. So the short answer is everybody is very favorable, has been very favorable, uh, into this, and a large part of that is because we socialized the work over the two years of going out to the field talking about 3.0. We w always talked about what we were doing with 6.0, and we actually iterated the logic charts from the book with each of the audiences and all the divisions and cores and other audiences we talked to and asked for their input. So we had our consensus, the things that we wanted to do, we had already developed a pretty high level of consensus throughout the force. Now there were things like we talked about earlier about whether we were having adjectives or adverbs and firm words and, and so forth, but that was small potatoes. The big ideas everybody bought into. And in most cases, when we laid it out and, and just said, this is what we want to do, what do you think? We got a round of applause in most cases. And we've got no negative feedback whatsoever that I've heard. Um, there may be you know, parts of the book, hey, you've got a typo here or something, but nothing having to do with content. How about you, Chuck? I no, sir, know. I haven't heard any content-related stuff. Well, we basically, what we captured in doctrine is what good leaders, good commanders, good staffs, good NCOs, we're already doing. So it, it, it was natural. Yeah, we were validating what, you know, the best parts of what Army leadership does. You know, and that's, that's kind of one of the things you talked about, Chris, was 
the, the people that, that had the most problem with the manual we staffed it out were probably people that were, that were kind of leadership SMEs. Yeah, you know, they kind of wanted to describe as a, a method of leadership versus command control at large. Uh, and, and I could not, I kind of personally couldn't believe this was such a big deal, right? Uh, it just really kind of seemed like a weird thing to get all spun up about, but, but there was a lot of thought put into it. Uh, you know, kind of my logic is, is you have leadership, you know, we want everybody to be a leader. Our leadership doctrine is written for everybody in the Army that's out there. Uh, and and it's there's a considerable amount of it, right? Uh, when you look at all the value uh, attributes and uh, you know competencies that they write to, I mean it's almost a PhD level thesis on leadership. Uh, command, okay, to me is a specialized type of leadership. Well, it's not, I mean it's not to me doctrinally it's a specialized type of leadership. And and while you know commanders are leaders and they need to understand the leadership book. To me, ADP 6.0 is kind of the book that talks about really about what commanders do during conduct operations. And so when I kind of talk about mission command, you know, I talk about, you know, the parts of leadership that are applicable to, you know, employing this, this, this approach to command control. Okay. So there's definitely a relationship there. I don't think there isn't. But just the way I've chosen to describe it, I've chosen to relate it to command control in the commander. Now, does that mean that other people can't employ mission command? No, absolutely not. You know, I think they're, they're all good leadership principles. Uh, but the way I write to it in, mission, in, in the mission command doctrine, you know, I write specifically to, to commanders uh, in the conduct operations. And we've had a lot of conversations with the, the leader development. Uh, you know, that's leader development's a, a big priority for General Rainey right now, getting to the how. Because we've talked about the what for a long time, but the how is where we all know that, that there's, you know, uneven levels of uh, expertise. And so one of the hows for developing leaders is a mission command approach to operations. So it's a commander responsibility but it involves all these leaders, and that's why we, we, we walked away from it all being commander's business and talking about the responsibility of leaders to develop subordinates to be able to employ a, a mission command approach. Um, and so, you know, a lot of folks, as they grow up through the Army, when you do LPDs or OPDs, you know, officer professional development, leader professional development, uh, that's what you're doing when you do that. I mean, you do that with an eye on developing people to be able to take a commander's intent two levels up and, and, and stay within it so that when someone isn't around to tell me what to do, I know what to do. Um, and so th th that, that role of other leaderships is something of the other you know, members of the team, whatever that team may be, is addressed in, in this version of 6.0, and we did it in the 6.22 rewrite, the Army ADP on leadership, talking about that part of leader development is, is developing to them to be able to employ a, a, a leadership approach. And I'll quote General Perkins on another issue. You know, you can have success with different approaches, but only up to a certain level and only when you're doing things that you know how to do already. Uh, so you can micromanage the heck out of, of people and be very successful. And there's been plenty of people who have been success, successful, but they only are successful up to a certain point. And then their span of control is so broad that that doesn't work anymore. Or the situation changes. And if you don't know how to answer every single question, because it's new to you too, then 
nobody's going to do anything because they're waiting on you to tell them what to do. Um, and so uh, those things taken together, I think, are a kind of a powerful outcome. Here. Yeah. Well, I think it's important that we, that, that we clarify this because it is, I think that's a point of an issue for a lot of people is they get leadership and mission command and command and control conflated and it's, and it's unclear as to how they work together. But I think it's, it becomes more clear that mission command almost seems like it brings structure to the attributes and competency stuff that we talk about in 622. It gives us a method for putting that into action. And so I, I think that that's helpful to, uh, to a lot of people out there. Well, it's also a time-consuming thing, too, okay? you got to take the time to develop leaders. There's all kinds of people that say they, you know, leadership development is our most important thing. But when the rubber hits the road, do you have a leadership development program in your organization, particularly in tactical units in the operational force? I mean, if you don't have that, then you're not developing your subordinates. And all your interactions with your subordinates should be with an eye on developing to be better. Um, again, most people instinctively understand that, but there are folks that I think, unfortunately, don't necessarily put as much effort towards that as they ought to. But they need to if they want their outfit, their organization, their echelon, their formation uh, to be able to execute a mission command approach. You've got to do it routinely because if you don't, you know, you're not all of a sudden the band of brothers when you show up on the drop zone. I mean, it, you gotta, it, it takes years to get to that point. Well, gentlemen, on that note, I think we should probably wrap this up. Uh, thank you for your, your time today. Thanks for joining us.